when you do that, you speak a language that alcoholics, I believe, understand without others being able to fully process what is being unfolding. And, you know, when you sit down opposite someone and you have within your gift the ability to turn on what is being a fading light within their soul, that is incredible. And to that end, I will always be much more appreciative of the ability that I have now to affect people in a positive and productive manner than the ability I had to entertain people in a sporting manner back in my late teens and early 20s. Welcome to the Alcohol Addiction Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol and spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Folks, we're not that far off Christmas. Well, if you're like me, Christmas was a very anxious period of time. I never really got into the old joy and flow of it because I was always broke. So Christmas for me was always a very, very stressful experience. And that might be the case for you, okay? So if it is, and if that's the case, then there is never been a better time to stop smoking and to stop drinking, okay? You might think that it's the other way around, that I need to get through Christmas and I need to drink and I need to smoke and I'll deal with it when I get to January. Bollocks, that's a load of old nonsense. That is resistance talking, my friend, okay? Cut, (laughs) nip that shit in the bud. There is no time like the present when it comes to getting rid of cigarettes and alcohol and stop poisoning ourselves, right? So I want to work with you in two ways. You can work with us in the Strive Method for Addictions, if you have an addiction issue to cigarettes or to alcohol, or we can work with you in your relationship, the Strive Method for Relationships, okay? We can um, help you with that as well. Both six-month workshops, we have opportunities for group workshops, or we have opportunities for personal one-on-one coaching with myself and our 15 uh, 1,000 Days Sober Coaches, okay? So if you want to have a bit of that, get over to www.1000daysober.com and book yourself in for a Choose Yourself call. We'll ever be talking to me or a member of the 1,000 Days Sober team so we can get you the help that you need, all right? If you're not ready for that yet, then why don't you join our private Facebook group? It's growing in number. Conversation on there is really cool. Uh, you can email us at one, that's the number one, one K sober at gmail.com. And you can ask Richie, our community manager, to give you the link to join our Facebook group. Okay. Also, keep your eyes and ears peeled. We're going to be running an anxiety workshop in December. So we will be doing that and letting you know about that on the podcast. And uh, get on our social media. So join us, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all 1000 Days Sober. Okay. And um, you can also follow me on Twitter if you want, Chingster23, C-H-I-N-G-S-T-E-R 23. Uh, That is my handle on Twitter, mostly about poker, but we put a lot of addiction stuff out there as well at the moment. So check that out as well if you want. Okay, that is me in a nutshell. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to our guest today. His name is Kieran Brady. Uh, Kieran is an alcoholism consultant with SP Bespoke a specialist in home-based intervention and therapy across England. In his early life, he was a professional footballer. He played for Sunderland in the modern-day Premier League, as well as represented Ireland at international level. He was forced into early retirement at 21, um, but he is passionate about recovery and guides people through the process, both professionally and non-professionally. 
His other passion is a field of equality. And Kieran has worked as an educationalist and expert witness around racism, homophobia, and wider forms of prejudice for over a decade. He has delivered over 500 training days on the issues, assisted asylum seekers in gaining refuge status, written speeches for Lord Mayors, and in 2012, he was her first ever football to become patron of gay pride. Okay. And we didn't touch on um, gender equality in this call. What we did do was have a good old fashioned chin wag about alcohol and how about how we can support people. Kieran and the way that Kieran uh, recovered and went through his uh, whole experience is very different to mine. And uh, so it'd be good for you to hear a completely different school of thought on things. You can tell that he's really super passionate about uh, this, about helping people, basically. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Kieran Brady. But before I do, get over to www.1000daysober.com and go to podcast page, click on Kieran Brady episode, and you can uh, download our show notes there and get all the links so you can get all to Kieran and give him some love and rate this episode on your podcast players, please, and tell us how great it was or how shit it was, okay? All right, have a good time. Take care. Kieran Brady, how are things, my man? Things are very well. I think given what we're confronted by globally at the moment, I am coping rather admirably. And I think when you've got the recovery and sobriety to fall back on, as it were, then you're obviously trying to ensure that you're in the best position possible to extend that hand of friendship, solidarity and support to others that are less fortunate. And of course, as an alcoholic, I'm very accustomed to upheaval, much more Mm. personal than what we're witnessing socially and globally, but all things considered very well. Where do you call home these days? I am in Sunderland in the northeast of England. I have been here since I came to play football and since I had to retire at the age of 21. I developed a very strong affection and affinity for the area in the five years that I had. And I've been here ever since and I don't envisage moving away anytime soon. How did it feel like like as a child myself, you know, when I'm ever interviewed and asked the question, what did you want to be when you were growing up? It was always a professional football. That's all we did. It was before the times of video games and computers and mobile phones. We just grabbed a football, went outside, and when you was in the house, you grabbed a pair of rolled-up socks and you kicked it about, right, forcing (laughs) your sister to be a goalkeeper. Like I always wanted to be a footballer. And to not make it hurt, but Mm. to make it and then have that taken away from you at 21, how on earth did you manage to process all that? Well, I think with the benefit of hindsight, it was something that was undertaken with difficulty. I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, and I certainly didn't have any insight that I was en route to alcoholism or was already in the very early stages of being an alcoholic. And to that end, I think many an alcoholic will tell you that when they go through a period of adversity or they suffer some particular trauma, then alcohol becomes not just a great get-out clause, as it were, but it's enhanced in a sense because you feel that people will be much more sympathetic to you drowning yourself in alcohol because of what you've went through and experienced. So it was very difficult. I think there was a period of denial about what was unfolding. 
And it certainly took me some time before I became much more accepting of it and perhaps extricated myself from that constant feeling of self-pity. The way I look at it now is, particularly because I'm resident in this city, I managed to do something for five years that the majority of my neighbours, friends and acquaintances would love to do just once, and that was to put on that red and white striped shirt. And it was it allowed me to realise my childhood aspirations, as you've just touched upon, Lee. Many young people have that ambition to play professionally one day. For the overwhelming majority, it's something that doesn't come to fruition. So I'll always be eternally grateful for the five years that I did get, rather than the 10 or 12 or 15 that, through circumstances, were not to be. And for people listening to this, you know, just expand upon that, Kieran. How vital is it to ingrain that gratitude into your way of being when it comes to dealing with the shit sandwiches that get thrown in our face? <laughs> well, I think you always have to try and look at as big a picture as possible. And irrespective of what confronts us, and I'm not in any way trying to be dismissive about the experiences and the endurance at times that people have to go through. And it's very cliched and easy to say that someone else, somewhere else, has always gone through something that is worse than what you're enduring. But it's the reality. And, you know, in recovery from alcoholism, I've came to terms with the fact that not being able to play professional football for as long as I would have wished is incomparable to what some of my fellow alcoholics have experienced either in their childhood or even in their adulthood. So to that end, it certainly impressed upon me the need for greater humility, greater acceptance, and in many respects, it's empowered me to go out and try to make sure that I can be there for my fellow citizens, but of course, first and foremost in many respects, to pass on the expertise, experience, and that understanding of what it's like to not drink like an alcoholic, but to think like an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Because when you do that, you speak a language that alcoholics, I believe, understand without others being able to fully process what is being unfolding. And, you know, when you sit down opposite someone and you have within your gift the ability to turn on what is being a fading light within their soul, that is incredible. And to that end, I will always be much more appreciative of the ability that I have now to affect people in a positive and productive manner than the ability I had to entertain people in a sporting manner back in my late teens and early 20s. In fact, I just consider myself very, very fortunate that I've been blessed with the ability at different stages of life to actually do both. It reminds me of working in the poker industry. Poker players get into a really super high level and then realising what what's the other than earning money what's the value here and then mm. they they realize that there is a there's an entertainment value so people are invested in the community as fans they yeah. see me as a player that they they want to watch and i entertain 
But then for a lot of them, that's not enough. And they use their money to go into more philanthropic endeavors to kind of help people who are less fortunate than, with them in the world. And then they realize, holy shit, this is what it's all about. And I'm grateful to have done both, but my meaning and my purpose has been accentuated as a result to touch people's lives in a completely different way as when I was sitting yeah. on a table or on a football field. I mean, I, I can completely appreciate that. And I mean, I get asked to do a lot of work as a result of not only being a recovered or recovering alcoholic, but in my capacity as an ex-footballer and who's very open about being an alcoholic. Yeah. And of course, it's much easier to be open and be candid about being an alcoholic when you've got 11 years of sobriety. <laughs> it's much more challenging in the very early stages because when your recovery is still in its embryonic stages, you know, many people, not just those with a high profile, have greater reservations because apart from anything, they don't want to impress upon the wider world that they've embraced this new life only to relapse a week or a month or several months later. But in that capacity as a former footballer, I mean, for example, I recently worked with the police in the northeast of England, and it's just to try and impress upon the officers and the support staff throughout the whole northeast what actually constitutes alcoholism and what actually isn't alcoholism because it's something that's subject to so many misconceptions and myths. And so in, in, a, in a strange way, if somebody was to ask me now, one of the best things about being a footballer is actually being an ex-footballer because you're still viewed as such, but because of age and lifetime experiences, I think there's much greater respect afforded to you because I think when you're a footballer in your playing career it does tend to centre much more around adulation or adoration and I certainly feel that the people that ask me to get involved or engaged in certain initiatives around alcohol reduction or alcoholism it's coming much more from a position of respect based on what they perceive me to be now and I mean it's, it's, it's wonderful to you know, for people to have that, you know, that level of trust and faith and confidence in your experiences and your ability to articulate the illness and how important and how beneficial recovery can be. I mean, I'm not philanthropic in any respect simply because I'm not financially positioned to be that. You know, the poker players that go out and have won half a million in one evening might be in a better position than most to do that. And if they do do it, then they should be given credit, you know, for doing it. But as a recovered alcoholic or recovering alcoholic, something I can offer is arguably much more valuable than enhancing someone's bank balance. And that is time and making sure that that time is utilized in a way that is going to be beneficial for the person that you're dealing with at any given moment. And long may it continue. Yeah, I remember getting into a deep conversation with one of my friends. He's, his name is Talal Shikurchi, and he's one of the one of the most proficient hedge fund managers in Europe. And I was it was a time when I was going through this. I just learned more about effective altruism, which is like a branch of philanthropy. And I got into this state where I would buy a decaf at Starbucks and feel guilty that I was buying it because. I knew that if I was to uh, use that money to help somebody, mm. it would be a much better use of my money. And I, was, I remember going to Talal thinking, 
I'm not doing enough. Like I'm not giving enough. And, you know, but I was always thinking financially, Kieran. And he said to me, Lee, you're one of the most philanthropic people I've met. You've dedicated your life to helping people overcome addictions through your work and through your sitting with them and coaching them and podcasts and courses and all kinds of stuff. Philanthropy is not just money. You're touching mm. people's lives in a very different way. And I, that's what you're doing, Kieran, right? Yeah. I mean, I suppose philanthropy and so much charity work has become synonymous with the notion of financial donations, but in a much yeah. more purely spiritual sense than the donation of time and the ability to listening to learn rather than listening to respond are all of these virtues that in many respects are anatema to so many people within the Western world. But they are, you know, without wishing to sound too cliched or I dare say and the perspective of some too Eastern, you know, I believe it is much more conducive to a pathway to some form of enlightenment or transformation. And I would love to think that the people who may be viewing or listening are beginning to get an understanding that recovery from alcoholism, certainly the way it was educated to me, is much, much, much more than simple abstinence from the consumption of alcohol itself. Because it took me to go into recovery to get a much better understanding that my condition or my illness, which affected and afflicted me at its absolute foundation, wasn't simply about how I consumed alcohol and the patterns that were part and parcel of it. I had to come to terms with the fact that I had a soullessness. I always had a sense of not quite belonging or not quite fitting in. And that was despite the fact that on the face of it, I would come across as very extrovert, very confident. All of the perks that comes with being an aspiring young footballer at school and at youth level and then playing at first team level when I was 17. But despite all of that, all of these things that people would be very envious of, there was something inside me that felt incomplete. Mm. and. That then increasingly led to me becoming much more, whether it was reliant or dependent upon alcohol. And of course, as time went on, I got to the stage where not only would I be incapable of stopping once I started, but there wouldn't ever be any thought about only going out and having two drinks or four drinks or eight drinks. And even to this day, almost 11 and a half years after my last drink. And I think it's important to demonstrate because some people will think in their naivety, well, surely if you've not drank now for over a decade, you could return to some form of moderate consumption. But when I think about consuming alcohol and I think about the possibility of me consuming alcohol, I can only think in binges. You know, the idea of having one drink or two drinks or four drinks is wholly foreign to me, it always was. And then the evidence would be there to support that once I'd started. So I've got no doubt about the permanency of the condition that affects me. I'm an alcoholic, I always will be, but mercifully, alcoholism taught me enough lessons that I eventually, even reluctantly, accepted that I was going to die if I continued to engage in a relationship with alcohol. And I had to 
I had to develop an acceptance that some people would probably know my mind better around how I felt about alcohol, what happened once I started. And once I got, once I went and engaged in recovery in a much more proactive, sincere and sustainable way, then I've reaped the benefits. And, you know, I believe that that's what you have to do because I think 99 alcoholics out of 100, when they engage in some form of recovery, have little understanding or knowledge about just how potent and patient, progressive, devious and insidious alcoholism actually is. I mean, in my writings on the issue, I've said that if I was ever going to characterise alcoholism as a film character, it would be Kaiser Sozi from The Usual Suspects. You know, simply because it's this mystical, mysterious, yet very threatening, daunting and intimidating prospect And we just don't realise that, you know, nobody has any immunity from it. You know, there's world champion boxers. You know, there's probably people that have climbed Everest or went to the North Pole. You know, these people, full of the most profound mental resolve, have gained achievements when their mind and body was probably telling them to quit at any given moment. And these people managed to find the reserves to get through and go on and achieve incredible things in the sporting field or elsewhere. And yet the very same people will pick up an alcoholic drink, put it down, think they've got the mental strength to not pick it up again and find that they can't. I mean, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a queer old, confusing, complex, at times contradictory condition. But... It affected me and, you know, I'm a, I'll always be an alcoholic, but I don't suffer from it. And that's as good as it can get, you know, patient, potent, progressive, permanent, but thankfully preventative. But I don't believe I could ever have done it on my own. And I think anybody that thinks that he can, they can do it on their own is in for a rude awakening. Well, you just said that reminded me of, uh, you know, resistance. So... I'm always of the opinion that in all of my addictions, I'm, I'm battling this resistance. You know, you said earlier on about the soul. So I'm always battling the shadow, like the polar opposite of the soul, you know. And yeah. it reminds me of uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. He wrote in there, Adolf Hitler was a painter. That's correct. Yeah, he was. But, but, but you never see any of his art because it was, <laughs> it, was, it was easier for Adolf Hitler to start World War Two than it was for him to face and overcome his resistance. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, I love the way he said that, you know, and what you were talking about there, Kieran, and tapping back into what benefits you get today out of being a, a professional footballer when you were younger is, for me anyway, one of the reasons I, I reached out to you is it, it allows people who have a problem with alcohol to look and go, oh, Kieran was a professional footballer. Adolf Hitler was a fucking maniac who took over the world. So-and-so climbed Mount Everest. So-and-so is a a celebrity film star. It just shows that it doesn't matter how, quote-unquote, successful you are from societal conditioning's view. Yeah. Alcohol is just so normalised and ubiquitous in our culture that everybody is at risk of it just fucking taking over them. 
I always say to people, whether I'm speaking publicly or in private conversations, that almost everyone, if they were prepared to look hard enough or extend the family circle, will probably be able to locate an alcoholic within their family. Yeah, now, some may have to extend it beyond their immediate family, but you know, th- th- this is an illness that has so many comparables with other illnesses and how illnesses are generally thought of in terms of having its source, having its symptoms. And then, of course, diagnosis or misdiagnosis at times, because people will often say to a loved one or a family member or a friend, you know, I think you've got a drink problem or I think you're an alcoholic, when at times, you know, there might be a drink problem, but it might be temporary or there might be an alcoholic, but it might be based on some of those social myths and misconceptions. So it is something that's all around us, but I would say that within our culture, unfortunately, the broad perception within society still tends to revolve around that immediate portrayal of an alcoholic as someone that's asleep on a park bench or someone that is under the care of the Salvation Army. Now, that's not to deny that some of those perceptions are indeed accurate, but it's vitally important to try to make sure that people understand that 95% of alcoholics are not sleeping on a park bench. A huge number of them are going to work every day or dropping their children at school and doing things on a regular basis that would tend to deflect attention away from the idea that somebody, you know, has this mental obsession for alcohol or finds it increasingly difficult to stop once they start. And I've had numerous people come up to me and say, you're not an alcoholic, Kim. You're not an alcoholic. You, you, um, I've never seen you drinking in the morning. You always get to work. And, you know, and all of these things that are based around this social conjecture. And some of these people didn't witness me as I was in the closing stages of my drinking because the close, for a lot of alcoholics, certainly those that go into recovery, the closing stages means closing of doors. You know, so, so much of what they're doing is behind closed doors when they're, you know, I got to the stage that I wasn't just consigning myself to my house. I was consigning myself to my bedroom, away from not only everyone else externally, but also the people in my house, primarily my now wife or girlfriend as she was then. And I don't know if it's part and parcel of alcoholism that you reach a point over time where you just want to be alone with what in many respects has become your best friend the thing that you can rely upon to get you through what you regard as the unjust world around us, but the very same world that people are able to cope with and overcome without resorting to a bottle or a can or a glass or whatever the case may be. And, you know, mercifully now all of that's behind me, but, you know, I was a slow, I was a slow learner, but I tell you, alcoholism's a very patient teacher. And you just hope that people can have enough clarity when needed to ensure that the windows of opportunity that present themselves at times can be grasped and you can build the momentum, you can listen, you can be honest, you can be humble, and you can make the distinction that recovery is not about fighting, recovery is more about surrender, you know, because 
I, I was never ever going to succeed getting in a ring with alcohol time and time and time again, you know. And it wasn't until some of the wiser heads in recovery says you the way you get through this is just not to get in the ring, you know. And it takes people maybe a little bit of time to understand that because we constantly read about high profile celebrities battle with the booze. And of course, the way to recover from this particular illness is to, if you want to look at it as a battle, there's only ever going to be one winner. And, you know, I had a collection of silver medals, if you want to use the analogy of battles. So, you know, thankfully now it's it's something that's in the distant past in one respect, but it's something that can be brought to the surface very quickly as and when it's required. I mean, I can remember... June the 12th, 2009, very vividly, I was panicking, I was paranoid, I was anxious, I was depressed, I was suicidal, and I just would never care to go through that again, you know, and as and when needed, I can bring that to the forefront of my thoughts, but mercifully, I don't particularly have to, because I've not had any temptation to drink alcohol for, you know, years and years and years. I try to avoid the nomenclature around alcohol and alcoholics as much as I can because I, I find that, like you say, the caricature of an alcoholic which has been created by society becomes a convenient scapegoat that allows people not to look at their own shit. So whenever I have my friends, and it's very rare, my friends come up to me and say, I'm not an alcoholic. Like I, I don't have a problem with alcohol, but I have been thinking about it lately i'm a little bit curious as to what you're going on with straight away there's like a a little red flag waving at me there and then i just simply say to him i tell you what why don't you just try stopping for a period of time that you find things acceptable maybe could you try stopping for a month and just record everything that comes up for you and what's going on and generally what you'll find is they'll come to me and go holy shit like i'm finding this really difficult and then you can start saying, well, what is it you find difficult about it? And it will be different for different people. But the you know, most common um, answer that I, I'll get from my friends you know, is, well, I can't go out without drinking. Like, I, I cannot socialize. I can't go out without drinking. So then it's like, oh, that's interesting. You, yeah. you, you need to drink alcohol to socialize? Yeah. Okay. If, is there any times in your life where you've gone out and socialized and not drank alcohol? well, I went to Starbucks yesterday and had a laugh with the lads and yeah, yeah, I can. So why do you need to do it in a pub? So it's just what it comes back to, to me is thinking about Kieran Brady, the lad who's got his shit together in school. Everybody's probably putting you quite high up in the status hierarchy in terms yeah. of like how you fit in. But inside of you, you don't feel like you belong in the world or this culture's environment. And I think. I think that myself personally, that, that that's in the work that I've done and the people I've worked with, it, it's an element of the human condition that we all have. And some of us are able to deal with it. Yeah. Some of us are able to block it out of our mind completely using numbing agents. And then every now and then there's a Kieran Brady that comes along that just cannot shake it. And then mm -hmm. they need to figure out what it is and they need to work on it and pull it and tweak it. And I think this is why you get so many creatives and so many successful people who do struggle and eventually come out and talk about it. I think there's definitely a link there with creativity, you know, artistry, all that kind of stuff, and, and this issue for sure. Yeah. Because I think, I think people 
like me when I was younger, there was a part of me that really wanted to be different, that mm-hmm. artist in me, but there was such a fucking pull, Kieran, to be like everybody else and be accepted and to be loved and for people to look at me and like me and want me to be in their, their gang. And if mm. drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, taking drugs, having sex when I was way too young, if that's what I needed to do in order to be yeah. felt like I belonged, I'd do that. Yeah, I, I can fully relate to that because I think being a footballer and then once I became a footballer, the incessant desire to go out and buy designer clothes were all part of me compensating at times for the void that I think was becoming much more prevalent within me. And my alcoholic drinking hadn't yet taken hold to any significant degree, certainly not to the point that people would be accusing me or considering me to be an alcoholic. But when I look back now, that soullessness was probably manifest in wanting people to see Armani or Versace or Dolce & Gabbana on the outside because on the inside there was somebody that was, in a sense, crying internally. And, of course, you know, so it may well be that... And it's it's funny you mentioning, you know, about all of these things, particularly as males that we're expected to do or have placed upon us that we have to fulfil the role that masculinity has for us. So it's about sowing your wild oats as much as possible or being able to outdrink your peer group. And it's completely nonsensical. I mean, the, apart from the fact that so many people are doing it, if you actually want to be a real rebel, then you wouldn't drink alcohol. Yeah, you'll, stand yeah. out, you'll stand out a lot more. And if you take a vow of chastity, then you'll certainly stand out from the red-blooded peer group that you generally frequent or socialise with. So, you know, there's this, there's this notion of people, that they're being a rebel by simply doing everything that everyone else is, is doing. And I mean, with being an alcoholic, I never went out with any intentions and I never took any personal prestige from being able to outdrink people. You know, I would be more, I would be much more secure if somebody says, Kieran, that's a really nice jacket you're wearing, rather than somebody saying, Kieran, out of everybody in this pub, you can probably consume the most alcohol. I mean, it was never about that for me as such. But you know, I came within recovery, I came to learn that not every alcoholic on every single occasion will go out with the sole intention of getting absolutely intoxicated. Mm. But it just tends to end up that way. (laughs) Because once they start, every excuse imaginable has some form of plausibility in their own mind. And I, you know, even when people would say to me on occasion, well, Kieran, you've got got work tomorrow, you have to be up early, you're going to be driving. That, you know, the the sort of alcoholic justification, you know, our rationale, oh, no, it'll be okay. You know, because... The older, wiser heads within my recovery have told me time and again, you know, that there's there's two things could go on every alcoholic's gravestone. Um, Nobody understands me, and my case is different. You know, and I think everybody that's alcoholically minded will have entertained those ideas at times, and they'll certainly have espoused them verbally quite often to try and justify the fact they've been drinking. How much they've been drinking, 
I know that I did with my, you know, my wife Mandy. She thankfully stood by me, but I exhausted her. That's the that's the particular phrase that she would use about what I inflicted upon her. You know that it, it was it was about worry and concern much more than anything else in terms of aggression or being particularly abusive. It was being, you know, just and at times I. Again, it took me getting into recovery and somebody saying to me, and, you know, at times I would still be full of me, 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 poor me, poor me, poor me. And, of course, it is a hellish existence for somebody to be an alcoholic. But people put me in my place by pointing out, Kieran, always bear in mind, you went through half of it pissed. The people that love you went through it stone cold sober. Mm. And that really hit home to me. And I realized that their worry and concern and their anger or frustration wasn't just about when the arguments would come when I traipsed in at seven o'clock in the morning or three days after I'd went out to get a pint of milk. It was the worry and concern when I was enjoying myself, and but they didn't know that. You know, so I might be being the life and soul of the party in someone's house. I might be up on the karaoke entertaining people in the pub. But unbeknown to me, I've got someone sitting at home worrying herself silly, thinking that a phone call is imminent from a hospital or a police station. It took me getting clarity to realise, my God, I was the only alcoholic in the house, but I wasn't the only one suffering from alcoholism. You know, my alcoholism was sort of using me as a conduit to make other people neurotic. You know, and it did that to my partner, it did it to my mother, my brother, my sister, and it cost me relationships. And it's just a hellish, torturous existence. And it takes that clarity, I believe, for you to get a much better understanding of just how impactful it is upon other people. It's a very good, perhaps the best example, I believe, of some form of condition that has collateral damage very central to its nature. Yeah, I, I look at, I think back to my childhood and my mum and dad. You know, my mum and dad would never, ever entertain that they could come anywhere near the description of alcoholics, right? Like, it, the idea would be laughable to them, you know? Uh-huh. Yet, yet, I saw my dad put alcohol first every single weekend for the entirety of my life. And I saw him use that as a way to numb his inability to connect and to understand his emotions and and reach out to me as a father and be a good husband to his wife. And you see that and you grow up as a, a, a young lad, just that's your role model, right? So that is who I, nobody's teaching me in school how to be a father. No one's teaching me in school how to be a husband. This guy is subconsciously, right? Sorry, dad. Seems like I'm blaming you here, but I think, you know, all that, particularly in my age, I'm 45. Like, people just didn't know how to deal with this shit, right? And I've had this conversation with my own man. How that affected me, how that affected my sisters, and then now how that affects our relationships 20, 30 years on, and how we behave and act is incredible. And if you multiply that by, you know, all around the world with the fact that if I was to say to my dad, Hey, Dad, you know, like, do you think it's normal to drink 20 pints a weekend for 50 years? 
do, do you like do you think that's normal he'd be like fucking yeah it's normal why isn't it normal you know because because it's just it is normal to him it is normal and we're always in my community going between this like who is normal and who isn't normal? Is, yeah. is the person who doesn't drink this poison and kills 3.3 million people a year, is that person normal or is a person who drinks normal? And we unfortunately have to accept that the way that society is, it's actually normal to drink and to yeah. black out and to get smashed and to do all these things, particularly where I grew up, Kieran, you know, like in the South Wales Valleys where there's not mm. a lot to do. The yeah. right to passage to be a man is really important because of rugby and all this kind of like uh-huh. shit going out fighting, all that kind of stuff. And then when I started doing this work, I realized that actually same thing happens in New Zealand, same thing happens in Australia, same thing happens in America, same thing happens in Canada. And it is, it's a it's a massive, massive issue. So you said earlier on that you touched upon, you didn't use the word the work. But I want to touch upon the work, like what we have to do in order to shift from being someone who has a major problem with alcohol or an alcoholic, as you say, and then someone who suddenly is not drinking. Because Mm. there is a member of our community that I love dearly, who's recently just had a relapse. And there's an aspect of that to me that is like, well, of course that was going to happen because we're not doing X, Y, and Z. And we're not Mm. putting this desire to be someone that doesn't drink at the top of our values hierarchy like everything needs to be subservient to this and that's Mm -hmm. not happening so because it's not happening of course you're going to be in this oscillation of pain pleasure pain pleasure pain pleasure all the time what was the work like for you and how did you instill it into your life and how did you think about it in reference to early recovery yeah well i dare say like the person you're talking within your own midst i went through several relapses. I, perhaps as a result of being quite self-confident and I believe knowledgeable about life, I thought that this was something that I could overcome through my own will, completely ignoring the fact that it was my own will in many respects which was contributory to the predicament I found myself in and the illness that I was deteriorating further into. And I'd went to recovery on a number of occasions. I was told repeatedly that just being around alcoholics was merely the platform from which to build recovery. But I wasn't going to benefit over any long term from some form of osmosis, that I would have to bring about change and I would have to be proactive. And of course, and you'll know yourself, that many an alcoholic will tell you that the reason they relapsed is because, as they would say, I wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't ready to stop drinking. I hadn't had my last drink. And that would be applicable, I believe, to me. And, you know, I had to have a rock bottom that wasn't cushioned in any way, shape or form. And I think that when you're increasingly becoming suicidal, then... Certainly for me, something had to give. And I'd been to recovery, as I said, a number of times. And I thought the people that I've come to respect, albeit not listened to in the manner I should have, have told me on a regular basis that just being around alcoholics, whilst very good to initiate recovery, isn't going to suffice. I'm going to have to try and get through a transformation myself. You know, because 
it would be a hellish existence to live as a recovered or recovering alcoholic for 30 or 40 years, that every single day to have to be reliant upon willpower to resist temptation to consume mm-hmm. alcohol. We probably could get families, and we might even get the alcoholics themselves who say, well, I give you my permission to chain me to a radiator and keep me here for the rest of my life if you provide me with three square meals. I mean, what's the point in that? Because all you're doing is taking somebody that's in many regards mentally and emotionally imprisoned and chaining them up in a physical manner. And eventually they started to get it through to me that, no, Kiermo, you do these things and you'll get to a stage where you no longer think about alcohol and you no longer think about thinking about alcohol and you'll get to a stage where you no longer love or hate alcohol. You're just indifferent to it, but you always know, at least at the back of your mind, that it's something you no longer engage in because it tends to have a devastating and disharmonious implication for you or people around you. So I listened, you know, that, that I listened and there was listening with a degree of humility and acceptance that somebody probably knew more about this particular issue than I did. You know, if I'd been with a doctor in a traditional or mainstream sense and the doctor had x-rayed me or done exploratory work and told me that I was suffering from some form of condition or illness, I would have accepted at face value their expertise. But I think with alcoholism, especially when it's an alcoholic that's overseeing your recovery, there might be some reservations about, well, why should I take on board the advice or wisdom of this guy that six months ago or five years ago was drinking (laughs) his own piss? You know, and yet I came to realise that these are the people best positioned to help someone like me. And I think it's an incredible thing now that people like myself or you or many others, there'll be somebody going into, maybe not at this moment in time because of everything that affects us, but at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future, someone will have an appointment with a psychologist or a psychiatrist because they're suffering mentally or emotionally and they're drinking maybe part of that. And these revered and respected psychologists or psychiatrists will find out as much as they can about the person, but then when they find out their relationship with alcohol, they will actually tell them, well, you know the best people to help you overcome that particular aspect of your mental well-being is alcoholics. I mean, what an incredibly endorsement, you know. And I know it's not everybody that within the medical profession is, is willing to send people towards you know, like certain agencies or groups like AA or whatever the case may be. But there's a lot of them are. In fact, some of the people that I've helped and helped to overcome alcoholism have been mental health professionals, you know. Yeah. So, you, you know, it just shows you that, you know, there is no immunity just because you're medically qualified, you're professionally successful, you're personally confident. In fact, at times, I dare say, these can actually be contributory to your downfall because, you know, there is a saying in recovery that nobody's too dumb to recover, but many people are too smart, Hmm. you know, because they think that because they're successful in so many avenues or aspects of their life, that being able to stop drinking shouldn't come as any particular problem. But, of course, they find out often to their profound cost that alcoholism doesn't respect 
your professional status or your financial bank balance or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah, we have 15 coaches right now at 1000 Days Sober, trained in a variety of different skill sets from pure sobriety coaches to trauma specialists, anatologists, therapists. 50% of them came through our program. Right, 50, okay, right. that's great. So, yes. so now, now we're saying to somebody, hey, go talk to this guy, go talk to this lady. They, they know what they're on about. And then there is a, a lot more trust that they, it's like they can empathize with them. But I think as well, yeah. what you just brought forth there, which is I think is critical, is I remember in the early days when I didn't, I didn't have a problem anymore, but I, I was desperate to help other people. And I would go into people's forums. I guess people like, like 1,000 Days Sober, I would go on forums like that. Mm-hmm. And I would try to help people. And I just saw a lot of people going, ah, fucked up again. I'm back to day one. And then 50 people would say, ah, oh, it's okay. Um, dust yourself off. Get back up again. And I would be the one that would be like, what the fuck? Like, why do you keep doing the same thing? Why aren't you following the advice that, that is being doled yeah. out? Like, so like in 1000 Days Sober, much similar to you having some of the elder people in your recovery saying, hey, Kieran, look, right? Put yourself together. Just listen to mm-hmm. me a minute. This is what you need to take a look at. Maybe yeah. you need to think about doing this. I don't think there's enough people bold enough to do that these days because it's deemed to be lacking in empathy or whatever. But I think it's really important. A lot of people in 1000 Days Sober who go through my program and end up being coaches, they'll say to me, there were times, Lee, when I fucking hated you. There were times when you would drive me insane. I thought you were so hard on me. But now I realize that if you didn't do that, I would never have got through it. Yeah, not everyone's like that. Not everyone's like that, Kieran, right? Maybe me and you are. Maybe there's people out there that just need a hug and they're all right. I don't know. But it's not everybody, obviously, but some people need to kick up the ass, definitely. I mean, I think it depends. You know, I had one woman who I wasn't in any way directly responsible for her recovery, but she would phone me at times in the early stages of my relationship with her. And I would be very sympathetic and empathetic. And the position I took would be, you know, trying to console her and provide some solace. But, you know, I would, you know, and often I would pass advice on what she should do. And, you know, but the fifth or sixth time that she, you know, she wasn't getting the cotton wool effect from me. Mm -hmm. I was actually saying to her, look, why are you phoning me? You know, on every occasion she phoned me, she would be in tears. And if somebody was listening into that conversation, they would probably perceive me as being this very harsh, insensitive. And of course, I would, you know, say, well, well hold on a minute. This is it, the softly, softly approach hasn't worked. And you have to, of course, impress upon them time and again that this has got one objective and it's to kill them. And I mean, the other thing is with regards to like you're saying, um, about people you've worked with directly, you know, hating you or to use a common term in recovery, developing a resentment. I mean, I recall several people saying, and I would always say to people, look, if you develop a resentment against me as a relationship blossoms, that's perfectly fine. In fact, in many regards, I would actually expect it to materialise. And 
I, I remember a few occasions when I've sat down one-on-one with people and they've acknowledged and said, look, Kieran, I've got a resentment against you. And, <laughs> and I've, I've thought to myself, your chances of securing long-term sobriety have been enhanced significantly because you've got the honesty to you say, Kieran, I've got a resentment against you. Because I know that that's probably been difficult for you to acknowledge to me. You're probably thinking, am I allowed to have a resentment against this guy that's trying to change my life and save my life? And of course you are, because resentments are quite often completely baseless in terms of any rationale. When a young, a particularly young guy I was working with says, Keaton, I've got, I didn't really want to tell you, but I've got resentment against you. I went up and gave him a cuddle, you mm. know, and I says, you're going to be fine, you know, because I know that must have been difficult for you. And I've tried to impress upon you. You have to be honest. Maybe honest in a way like you've never been in your life, or certainly it's been a long time since. But of course, that's that. That's what you have to do, and you, you know, and. and it was it was always impressed upon me in early recovery as well, and I was very fortunate that I had good people around me. That, as much as they had firm belief in my ability to help somebody to recover from alcoholism and to maybe even assist their family and helping to understand what it's like, that that was the limitations. You know, I, I should never develop any form of ego to think that if they're suffering. If alcoholism coexists with depression or paranoia or some form of mania, you know, I'm not qualified to deal with that. You know, I will signpost them towards the medical fraternity because that's where the people that can help, you know, just being there to listen. I mean, it's an incredibly rewarding thing when you're with someone who is not only broken and fragile emotionally and mentally, but feels as if it's irreparable and then you can go in with them and by the time you leave them, whether it's half an hour later, 90 minutes later, whatever the case may be, there's at least that hope being instilled in them because one of the most horrific symptoms of being an alcoholic is believing that you're going through all of this on your own, that nobody else in the world thinks like you. Mm. And of course, being around alcoholics is a brilliant way to realise that your case isn't that different and there are people who will understand you. And, you know, I relapsed, I think, about six or seven times before I hope I had my last ever drink. But And it's easy now to see those relapses and how horrific they were as being additional lessons you know, that alcoholism was administering to me. And, you know, I would often look skywards and think in the aftermath of so much excess, both alcohol and substances at times, and, you know, think, what God, why are you doing this to me? And, you know, I can look at it and think, you know, really the question should have been, why are you doing this for me? And because of what I can now bring to other people and hopefully bring some solace, and optimism and prosperity, that that's much more applicable, you know, because if you just see it as part of the journey, then we had to go through the mill to some degree. You know, and we've all we've all got our own experiences. And you know, my, my brother, my brother's very, you know, into a lot of the, the human condition and 
You know, he says, if, if a group of people with 10 different complaints and pains and discomforts got in a circle, you know, and they thought that their pain and discomfort and ailments was the worst, if they experienced other people's, there's a good chance that they'll actually take their own back. You know, because, you know, and I don't know if that's true and I wouldn't like to put it to the test. And it may be the human condition, you know, when you're suffering from really bad toothache, well, in that moment, toothache's the worst pain, you know, that you can experience because it's difficult to imagine anything else when you're in so much discomfort. And, I mean, on that note, alcoholics always tend to think that the world is incredibly unfair and unjust because... It's becoming increasingly evident that they can't consume alcohol without consequences. You know, yeah. and most alcoholics, that ideally what they want to do is to drink alcohol without any repercussions to it. Mm. And, of course, once you're in recovery, I don't want to drink alcohol at all. It's got nothing to offer me. Mm. But in stages in life, I'm certain that's the case for a lot. But, you know, as, as time went on, I like being sober, and I, I was so I was becoming. I, for me, there's a huge difference between being sober and being abstinent. You know, I've I've worked with people who have stopped drinking around about the same time, and within six weeks, it's becoming very, very evident that one of them is getting further and further and further away from their last drink, and one of them is getting closer and closer and closer to their next drink. Right, and. That's because one of them is, without always being conscious of it, recharging their batteries. Mm. You know, because to go back to something you'd said earlier, because of how open I am and transparent, I will get my wife, for example, coming in from work saying, Kieran, will you give Michelle at work's brother a call because he's bad with a drink? Mm. Or if I'm at a wedding, I might be at a wedding and I might be at the wedding all day and people are, at the wedding, no, I'm an alcoholic, and I might get somebody coming up. One of the favourites is, oh, I've not had a drink for three months. I've not had one drink at all, so therefore I can't be an alcoholic. Right. You know, and they don't always know that what they're actually telling me is that they've got a drink problem. Yeah, you know, yeah. because a lot of people don't have to go off alcohol for three months. And then, of course, when you inquire further about it, they'll say, I'll say, well, well, why are you off it completely in such a manner? Well, if I'm being brutally honest, it's because I was really on it three months ago. And I, and I was the exact same. You know, I would always say to people, look, the way, if you want to disprove being an alcoholic, go and have a few drinks and see if you can have two drinks and not crave any more with such intensity. Mm. Because being on it for a week or 10 days and hammering it, and then being off it for six weeks, and then having a four-day binge, and then off it for two months. That's the pattern of behaviour that is much more compatible with an alcoholic mind rather than someone. My wife pours herself a glass of wine about seven o'clock each evening, and sometimes I'll go out to a recovery meeting, and I'll come back in about 9.30. Two and a half hours has passed since I left the house, and quite often, she's still got the same glass of wine. <laughs> now, I still look at a situation like that and think, how can you do that? I would have gone through two bottles. Oh, but without a doubt. <clears throat> and then, of course, I can recall, you know, the reality. And 
you know, my alcoholic mind tells me that somebody that takes an hour to have a pint of lager, they're the ones that are guilty of alcohol abuse. You know, they should not be, they shouldn't be allowed to drink. Only, <laughs> you know, and people that put straw, uh, people that put little umbrellas in drinks and people that um, sip it. And, you, you know, if my alcoholic mind and what would distinguish me from even heavy drinkers amongst my acquaintances that I grew up with, including in Glasgow. Mm. You know, I grew up I grew up in Glasgow and I went on a stag weekend to Amsterdam for one of my childhood friends's, you know, stag week, stag weekend. And I, I, we'd been there for three or four days. And at the end of it, as we were making our way back to Glasgow from Shiphall Airport, one of my friends commented to me that I was, you know, that I, the amount of drink that I put away was frightening. Or, or I think his exact words were that, Kieran, your constitution is incredible to absorb the alcohol that you put on. Something like that. And, you know, it does sound flippant, but see if a group of lads that like a drink are telling you that your drinking is excessive, then mm. you probably got to listen. Mm. See, if it, see if it's a group of lads from Glasgow that's telling you you're drinking too much, then yeah. I think you certainly have to listen. See if it's a group of lads from Glasgow on a stag weekend in Amsterdam that are telling you you're overdoing it, then you are overdoing it. You know, because, you know, I, I thought everybody was allowed to be an alcoholic if they were in Amsterdam for a stag yeah. weekend. Yeah. And you, you, you don't always appreciate that you know, they might be drink, they might be out drinking all day, but they they can space out their drinking, you know, and I would be the one that, you know, like a lot of alcoholics, you know, you would go out and when you arrived in the pub at seven o'clock on an evening on a Friday night, you'd arranged it with your friends, your work colleagues. At seven o'clock, you all look tight, you all look maybe kind of similar. You know, you've got freshly ironed and washed clothes on and you've shaved and you've combed your hair and gelled a particular style and you know if somebody had a camera panning in on the eight friends or eight acquaintances you know you would start to detect as the night went on that the alcoholic will be the one that will say to the others you just go in your own round you know I'll I'll get my own you know yeah. and by the, t- by the time they're finishing their third pint I'm already maybe part of the way or halfway down my fifth yeah. And this is in addition to the fact that before we came out, I was the only one that went round to the off-licence and got two cans because I want to just be in the mood by the time we get in the pub. And that's, that's all we do with my, my soullessness and the void and maybe like this profound, you know, like this, this thing that gnaws away at you that you can't quite place or you can't quite diagnose. And of course, you know, when, when that's happening and it's the only thing that's happening, I don't think we give much consideration to the prospect that it might be an alcohol problem um, or alcoholism. But certainly as time went on and by going into recovery and, and listening, you, you know, recovery for me is about the birth or even the development of so many human attributes you know, so whether it's the ability to listen or be humble and, of course, be honest and a willingness to change and acceptance that putting down the drink 
is just the beginning of that. Putting down the drink is not the end. You know, it's simply the beginning. Because if you put if you put down the end, if you put down the drink and think it's just about the absence of drinking, then you might have some success in a temporary basis of what you see as success. It will certainly offer some sort of respite for the people around you. Because if you're a particularly violent or mean drunk, it's of course understandable why they will benefit from the fact that somebody's no longer drinking. But you probably know yourself, Lee, that some family members after a time will say to somebody, just go and have a drink, because you're an absolute nightmare to live with. You're mm. a nightmare when you've had a drink, but you're a nightmare when you don't have a drink. And of course, what a, what a horrible, horrible position for mm. people to be in. It really is. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear that one quite a lot. Kieran, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you and... Um, Hearing your wisdom, I'm sure it's been very, very valuable to lots of people listening. If you want to hear more about Kieran and find out more about Kieran's work, head to www.1000daysober.com. Click on the podcast page and there'll be a specific podcast page for Kieran. You can find all the links and how to get on with him and learn more about his work as well. Uh, Kieran, it's been an absolute joy. Thanks for joining us on 1000 Days Sober. Thank you very much, Lean. Thank you for affording me the opportunity to speak, and I hope it helps at least one person. That's all we need. Just another reminder, folks, that if you want to work with Lee Davey, that's me, and the rest of the 1000 Days Sober coaching team, then get over to www.1000daysober.com and book yourself a Choose Yourself call with me or a member of the 1000 Days Sober team so we can see if you're a good fit to take the Strive Method for Addictions course, the Strive Method for Relationships course, or just join the Strive support team. And if you're feeling in a really, really serving mood, please rank and rate our podcast at whatever podcast platform you do, or spread the word around social media and tell people to come and listen to us. Thank you very much. Love you all. Bye. Bye.